As we began uh, this 10th uh, chapter, last week we saw two things. That first of all, the sacrifices that were performed in the tabernacle and the temple under the Levitical law were insufficient to take away sin. And we also saw that Christ's sacrifice is perfect and, <coughs> excuse me, sufficient. Okay? Now, we're going to be talking about the fact that Christ's sacrifice not only was sufficient, but is final. Christ's sacrifice is final. I trust everybody received an outline of the message today <coughs> so that you can follow along because this is a very deep, doctrin <coughs> doctrinally deep portion of Scripture and I want us all to understand what it's talking about. Let us keep that thought in mind this morning that Christ's sacrifice is final. Okay? The writer of the book of Hebrews again makes a contrast. And this time between the Levitical priest's position and the position of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He describes what the earthly priest did opposed to what Jesus is doing in heaven <clears throat> right now. Look at verse 11 again. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Now notice the verb. When you study the Bible, always pay attention to the verbs. Okay? Verbs tell us, talk to us about what? Action. So when is the action taking place? Look at the verb there. For every priest stands. It doesn't say every priest stood, but every priest stands. Why? Because at the time he wrote the book of Hebrews, the, the time the book was written, the temple was still standing and the sacrifices were still being offered. That's why we know that this book was written just a few, a few years before the destruction of the city and the temple which happened in the year 70 A.D., okay? So he's telling this, these Hebrew believers, yes, every priest stands ministering how often? Daily, every day, day in and day out, morning and evening, okay? They offer sacrifices. And he says, and those sacrifices can never take away sin. So we see here the contrast between what the priests did any, every day to what Jesus did. The emphasis is on the repetition of the priestly work of the Levitical order. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. The reason why the priests were standing, we said, I think last week, was because their work was never finished. Okay, so in the Greek, the verb, the present verb is continued action. So we could have translated this, or they could have translated this, every priest is standing. Okay, 
ministering every day. Constant action never ends. Constantly ever present now. Okay? So, uh, every priest is doing that. The reason why the priests were standing again was because their work was never finished. Their work was never done. And it was never different. I'm sure that some of you house mothers, housewives, feel like that sometimes, that housework is never done, right? Sun up, sun down every day, got to wash the dishes, cook the food, clean the house, da-da-da-da. I know how hard it is. I did it on Friday. I cleaned my whole house, and it was, I was ready for bed. Well, imagine you do that every day for your whole life, for your family, but that is not even as hard as having to sacrifice animals every day. And not just once, repeatedly. Okay? So their work was never finished. Their work was never done, and it was never different. They offered the same sacrifices day after day. The emphasis here is not on the Yom Kippur sacrifice or the Day of Atonement. The emphasis here is on the daily sacrifices and rituals because it says every priest stands ministering daily. So it's talking about the daily sacrifices because you have daily sacrifices and then you have the one atonement sacrifice once a year offered by the high priest. Okay? So here we see um, these sacrifices, the daily sacrifices offered okay, day in and day out can never take away sins. Their constant repetition was another proof that their sacrifices did not take away sins. Because if they had taken away sins, if they could take away sins, they would not have to be offered every day. Okay? So, for that reason, we go to the next verse now. What thousands of animal sacrifices could not accomplish Jesus accomplished with only one sacrifice, his own sacrifice. But this man, and notice that in your Bibles, man is probably with a capital M. Is it? Hello? Is it with a capital M? Are you reading your Bibles? Or are you admiring me? Admiring me, probably. Okay, now, this man... And I say that because he's not talking about any man. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ as man. Okay. After he had offered one sacrifices for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. <clears throat> now Christ's priesthood and sacrifice are different. He is one as opposed to the many priests. And he offered one sacrifice for all time as opposed to the daily sacrifices of the Levitical order. You see the contrast? How many priests were there? Thousands upon thousands. Because this went on for 1,500 years. So how many, how many priests do you think were there? The priest is dead, long live the priest. You know, somebody died, somebody replaced him. And they could only work up to a certain age, and they had to retire. So... Because they were dead, they died because of sin, human frailty. They had to be replaced. And this went on constantly. But the Lord Jesus Christ is one priest, the high priest forever. Okay? And they offer many sacrifices. 
Every day, thousands upon thousands throughout the year. Jesus Christ offered only one, his own. He did not offer the sacrifice of an animal. Animals did not die voluntarily, had no choice in the matter. But he voluntarily offered himself on the cross. Okay? Besides this, his sacrifice, as opposed to the Levitical sacrifices, took sin away once for all. Look at the text there in Hebrews 10:12. It says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, forever, okay? His sacrifice took sin away once for all in contrast to the Mosaic sacrifices which could never take away sin. That's why Yom Kippur. We said that before and I'll repeat it because by repetition we learn. Kippur in Hebrew means covering. Yom means day. The other day they were celebrating uh, Yom Hazmavot, something like that the day of the Independence Day, because now the 15th, uh, well, they're not celebrated yet because it's on the 5th, 14th, the 14th of May, 1948, that the state of Israel, the modern state of Israel, was born. I was reading last night an article in Israel, My Glory, and it has a big picture of the first prime minister of Israel, David Ben-Gurion, standing there in the museum, art museum in Tel Aviv that day, with other ministers sitting on the thing and uh, reading the proclamation of the independence, the birth of the modern state of Israel. In fulfillment to scripture, that threw away out the window all these evolutionists and all these progressives and replacement theology, theologians. Let me tell you, there's a big, we're living in a bad, the bad days because every year that goes by, Less and less, I'm talking about evangelical Christians now, even know what the meaning of Israel is, and they do not support Israel. Okay? Now, we are faithful to the Lord's promises. We do not support a, a state because of its political rightness or, you know, unrightness. We support it because of the prophetic word that tells us that in the last days the Lord is going to return Israel to its land, which happened since the beginning of the 20th century. They started going back, and the state of Israel was born almost one year before I was born. So I'm a little younger than the state of Israel. And some of you probably are younger still. And maybe a couple of here are a little older already. I don't know. Uh, but the thing is that the Lord's promises were fulfilled. And they are being fulfilled because it's not over yet. Worse days are going to be coming. Okay? Worse days are going to be coming before the Lord returns. But we know that every step of the way, and even what evil man does, God uses that to bring out his purposes. <clears throat> so he's still on the throne. Amen? Amen? So now we see that <coughs> his sacrifice <coughs> took away sin once and for all in contrast to the Mosaic sacrifices, 
which could never take away sin because Jesus' Jesus' work was finished. He sat down, it says, at the right hand of God. That's another contrast. The priests never sat down. There are no chairs in the tabernacle or the temple ever because their work was never done. But Jesus, it says here, after he had offered the sacrifice once forever, what did he do? Sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Okay? He sat down at the right hand of God. What does it mean, the right hand of God? It means the place of honor. When you sit at the right hand of someone, is the place of honor. Amen? That's why John and James wanted to sit in the kingdom, one on the right hand and one on the left hand of the Lord, the places of honor. And the Lord says, you don't know what you're asking. Amen? That's for the Father to give, not for anyone else. So here we sat, he sat down at the right hand of God, and he can sit down again because his work is finished, unlike the priest's work, which was never finished. And that is why they were always standing. So now we see in verse 13, look at your Bibles in verse 13. From that time, waiting, from what time? From the time he sat down. For the time he sat down. From that time on, he's waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. This is a quotation from Psalm 110, verse 1. Sit down at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Who wrote that psalm? King David. A thousand years before the Lord was even born. And there, back there was a thousand years before he was even born. It was prophesied that he was going to sit at the right hand of the Father until he, the Father, made his enemies his footstool. Okay? And this means that Jesus is now in heaven, sitting down and waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. You see a lot of people today talking and criticizing, attacking, Truly fulfilling what the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3. That in the last days there will be dangerous times. Men will be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. They'll be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And you see that these days. Okay? So we have a very, a lot of enemies. People who hate the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord, the Lord was hated when he was down here. We see that. He never did any sin. He went about, it says, doing good. Doing the will of the Father. And what did this world do? Especially the religious leaders. What did they do? They took him and they crucified him. What does man say by that? We don't want you. We don't want God. We want to do whatever we want to do. And what's happening today? Same thing is happening today. People want to do what they want to do. This is Mother's Day. Aren't you glad your mother brought you into this world? 
Imagine if your mother had aborted you. That's why I believe that this whole movement of pro-choice is satanic. Utterly satanic. I have the right over my own body. Maybe you have a right over your own body, but you don't have the right over the other body that's in your body. Pro-choice? Choose before you do what you do, not afterwards. Because after the baby is conceived, it's your responsibility, not your right, but your responsibility to have the baby. And if you don't want it, bring it to me. I'll take it. Don't laugh. Life is sacred. Got that? I don't care what they teach you in school, and I don't care what these liberal idiots tell you on the left. And I don't even care what the idiots on the right tell you either. I care what God says. And we Christians need to stand and make our voice heard. We need to choose the right candidates to make life better for us here while the Lord tarries. And not vote irresponsibly because a lot of people these days are voting according to their own lusts. What's convenient for me? What can I get from the government? And what law can they pass that benefits what I think? That's how people are voting today. Instead of voting for the right thing, I'm not going to vote for that because that's murder. I'm not going to vote for that because that's stealing. Am I wrong? Some people get uncomfortable when you start talking about those things. And I'm not preaching politics here. I'm talking about principles. The principle of life. Life is God's gift. And life is sacred. And we have no right. Nobody has the right to take a life away. I tremble when I think what this society is going to have to give the Lord an account. We have murdered more people than Hitler did. Only we murder them before they're born. And so those don't count. But they do in God's eyes. So, the big question. Where does life begin? Does it begin at birth? Or does it begin at conception? The answer is no. Life doesn't begin at conception. And life doesn't begin at birth either. Life began... When God created man in Genesis chapter 1. And what happens at conception is life is transmitted. God doesn't create new life. He transmits. We transmit. Human beings transmit life. And that to be sure is a new life. But life did not begin then. Life is transmitted. Didn't the Lord say in Matthew 19... He created them male and female from the beginning. Something beautiful that God created, man has taken and distorted. And that's why we have so many problems today too, don't don't we? And I don't mean to get off on a tangent here, but you know what? Sometimes these things need to be addressed 
because if we, do, if we don't in church, um, the media is going to uh, fill you with garbage and you probably will not, will not know what's right and what's wrong. You need to hear what is right here. What you hear here is the right thing because this is the word of God. Okay? Life is sacred and must be respected. It's a gift from God. And what you do with your life is your gift back to God. So you have no right to take any, we, we have no right to take anybody's life. So is abortion murder? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Okay, so the Lord says here, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And this is what started me. Those enemies that are out there, one day are going to be kissing his feet. Because those who do not accept the Lord Jesus Christ today as Lord and Savior, that day they're going to have to acknowledge him as their judge. And there's no forgiveness of sins then. It tells us very clearly in the Gospel of John that all judgment was given to the Son by the Father. All judgment was committed unto him. He became man. He lived in this world. He knows what we're like. He felt what we feel a million times stronger than we do. And he conquered. And he qualifies to represent us before the Father. So all of us that put our faith in him, you know what? We're justified. Isn't that wonderful? Because of him. Because of his grace. Some people may ask and say, why am I, am I responsible that Adam and Eve sinned? Well, you're not guilty. They did it. But you, unfortunately, and I inherited that nature. I, I, I read something by Oswald Chambers one day, my utmost for his highest. He says, God will not punish you for having inherited a sinful nature. But he will condemn you for having rejected his solution. So you're not scot-free yet. Unless, of course, you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So when you come to church, make sure... Make sure that you come to church and you enter this sanctuary, sit down, pay attention. And don't be distracted by other things. Because God is going to require of you every, to give him an account of everything you hear. And better for you to be scared now than later. Amen? So pay attention. Because this is the word of God. You have a whole week out there to do whatever you want. But on Sundays, pay attention. Because you don't know what might happen tomorrow. Our life is like a vapor that disappears quickly. And many times in the word of God, we are told to what? Do what? Listen. Book of Ecclesiastes, when you enter 
the sanctuary of God, be quick to listen and slow to speak. And I always tell people that. How many ears did God give us? Two. And how many mouths? One. So listen twice as much as you, as you speak. Because most people act like they have two mouths and one ear. You know that's true. Because we all have to talk. We all have to have an opinion. So, let us listen to what God says. Rather than our opinions or somebody else's opinion. So here we see the Lord tells us in this verse that Jesus is now in heaven, sitting down and waiting till his enemies are made his footstool in fulfillment to this psalm. <clears throat> Just as sure as all the promises regarding the Messiah were fulfilled, regarding the Messiah's first coming, were fulfilled, you can rest assured that all the promises and the prophecies regarding the second coming of the Messiah will be fulfilled as well. Because God does not go back on his word. So we see here that in fulfillment of this Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord is going to bring all the enemies of Christ at his footstool. In other words, they're going to be humbled before him. And they're going to be forced to confess him that he is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Eh? Because his work is finished, he is sitting down on the Father's throne until he rises to judge his enemies and the unbelieving world at his second coming when he will destroy his enemies and establish his righteous millennial kingdom. That's why you got a lot of ungodly people today saying, I don't believe in hell. Of course you don't. If you did, you would have to acknowledge that you're going there. Or that you will have to repent of your sin and do something about it so you don't go there. So when somebody that is, gets obnoxious and tells me, I don't believe in hell, I tell them, oh, you will, one second after you're there. You see how real it is. And after all, who's smarter, the Lord Jesus Christ or you? Who's, who is smarter and wiser, the Lord Jesus Christ or us? Jesus. He spoke about hell just as many times as he spoke about heaven. He spoke about the devil. I don't believe in the devil. I didn't believe in the devil before I got saved. And after I got saved, boy, I found out how real he is. We cannot believe something or not believe something that the Lord believes. In other words, we cannot believe something better than what the Lord believes. We cannot contradict what the Lord said. Some people say, oh, I don't believe in the book of Jonah. That's a myth. Well, Jesus didn't think it was a myth. He spoke about Jonah as a historical fact. Some people don't like the book of Daniel. They cannot believe the book of Daniel can be so accurate. But Jesus did. He spoke of Daniel as a historical fact. Oh, I don't believe the donkey, the ass, spoke to Balaam, the prophet. Asses don't speak. You do.
the Lord spoke about that. The Lord spoke about all those places in the Bible. No, I'm, I'm sorry, I meant to say Noah. People don't believe, I don't believe in Noah's Ark. I don't believe that, you know, the flood, and well, the Lord did. Interesting, he spoke about Noah. He spoke about Jonah. He spoke about Daniel. Those are the three stories in the Old Testament that are mostly disbelieved. The Lord believed all three of them. And of course, not only was he there, he allowed that. He caused that. You cannot believe some things in the Bible and not believe other things. Because this is like the story of a dying man who called his minister to his dying bed. And the minister said to him, where is your Bible? I want to read some things for you to comfort you. He says, it's right there on the night table. So the minister opened the Bible. And the Bible, the pages were all cut up, full of holes. Whole pages cut up. He said, what happened to your Bible? He says, well, you preached on Sunday from the pulpit that we cannot really believe this. And we cannot really believe that. And we cannot believe the other thing. So I cut it out of the Bible. It is not true. So his Bible looked like a piece of Swiss cheese. I am telling you today that the Bible is the word of God from cover to cover. From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21 is the word of God. I believe in the Bible from cover to cover. And I also believe in the covers because they keep it safe. There is nothing in the Bible that is not true. It is the word of God. Can we rely on it? Wholeheartedly. I've been doing so for over 47 years. So when somebody comes and tells you the Bible contradicts itself, tell them where, show me where. I do that with people and they can't. So here we see. Those who have trusted, who have trusted him must not fear. Look what it says in verse 14. This is one of the gems of the Bible. Verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Present continuous tense. He has perfected us. Past tense, perfect, action finished with results today. And the process of sanctification is going on. Okay? He has perfected us. Forever with just one offering. Believers are complete in him. As we are told in Colossians 2.10. We are complete in Christ. Let me tell you. If you are in the Lord Jesus Christ today. You are complete. You don't like anything. Some people think they need to have this. And they need to have that. In order to be complete. Oh I have to get married. Oh I don't want the Lord to come before I get married. Why not? The sooner he comes. The better we will be. Listen, I'm not the only one. Billy is single, just like me. Are you complete? You feel like you lack anything? Nothing. Sometimes I even think that according to certain people that are married, I feel like I'm ahead. I don't have the headaches they have. 
Now, I'm not knocking down marriage. God created marriage. It's sacred. Those who can get married, you can put up with it. God bless you. But the point here is that we're not incomplete because we are single, because I am single, or because you are single. Singleness was also created by God. Who did he, did he create Adam and Eve together? Hmm? No, first he created Adam, and Adam was single for a time. Poor guy couldn't take it. So here came trouble. Now, his guilt is worse because she deceived him, but he, I mean, she tried to deceive, she was deceived, I should say, but he was not. So that's, that's why man bears more responsibility. But we are complete in Christ, and that's the beauty of it all. Okay? We are complete in Christ. As time goes by, more and more I realize that I am satisfied in Christ Jesus. I lack nothing. Having Jesus is all you need. When you have Jesus, you have everything. Because he satisfies. What did he say to the Samaritan woman? <laughs> Look at the Samaritan woman. She was married five times. And now she was living in common law marriage. And she was thirsty. And the Lord says, if you knew who's the one speaking to you, you would ask him to give you water. And the water that I would give you, you will never thirst again. And what did she say? Oh, Lord, forevermore, give me that water. She was thirsty. All those marriages never satisfied. Now she was living in sin. That certainly did not satisfy. And the Lord says, the water I give you, You'll never thirst again. So when we come to Jesus, we don't thirst again. He satisfies. He satisfies my longing as nothing else can do, the song says. See? So here we see that we have a perfect standing before God because of the finished work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm not... Complete because of who I am. I am complete of who, because of who he is. Okay? He did what the Old Testament sacrifices failed to do. Not because they were wrong or anything like that, but because they were not sufficient. And this is the result of his one-time offering, our positional sanctification. God sees us as perfected because of Jesus' perfect work, not because of what we really are right now. In practice, believers, we believers still sin, don't we? Hmm? But there is a work still going on on the called practical sanctification. The Holy Spirit is inside believers conforming them to the image of Christ more and more day by day. You might not notice that, but if you're walking with Jesus, he's changing you every day a little bit more to be like him. And as we grow in grace, we must be more and more conformed to be like him. Let us remember that the work of Christ on the cross has perfected us forever. 
And that means we could never lose our salvation as some claim. We are secure in him. His blood perfects us forever. The sacrifice is permanent. Once and for all. And because his blood is better blood. So now in verse 15, we read these beautiful words. It says here, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Here in this verse of 15, the writer states how we believers can know we have this perfect standing before God. How? Because of the witness of the Holy Spirit. In verse 15, look what it says. Okay? But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. Who does he witness to? To us. To us who? Believers. John Wesley, the great evangelist of England, Methodist, started the Methodist movement, right, back then, 18th century. He was the son of a pastor, of a minister. Susanna Wesley, his mother, if I'm not mistaken, I think she had 19 children. And out of those children, three, four of them became pastors. And some of her, the daughters married pastors. So she didn't do too bad, did she? And the father, one day Wesley was called that his father was passing. He was dying. So he ran to his side. And he got there just in time to hear his father tell him, Son, son, it's the inward witness. It's the inward witness. It's the inward witness. And he left. He was gone. And those words hammered in his head. The inward witness. He wasn't saved yet. Wesley was not saved yet. Many years later, he's standing one day sitting at a service in Aldersgate in London. And they were reading the life of Martin Luther. And when they came to the verse that really spoke to Martin Luther, the just shall live by faith. That's when he stood up and he says, my heart has been strangely warmed. I just realized what it is. Is the witness of the Holy Spirit. Is the new birth. And that's what it is. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us testimony. Like the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit. That we are children of God. How do I know that I'm a child of God? Because his word tells me so. And because the Holy Spirit who wrote the word tells me so. Amen? The Holy Spirit doesn't speak outside of his Bible. The Holy Spirit doesn't come out the wall and say, you got to do this. No. Speaks to us through his word. And this is the most important thing you can know in your life. Okay? So see, here we see that his witness is based on the work of Christ, the Son of God. And it is given through the words of Scripture. 
He have already testified in the Old Testament to the truth that sin was to be totally, completely, and permanently, permanently dealt with. So here he tells us the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us that these things were true. And what does it, the writer do? He again quotes part of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, which he had done already in chapter 8 and in more detail. And for this reason, there is no need to quote the whole passage again. The point here is to make it clear, to make clear two things. First, under the New Covenant, the New Testament, there is no more remembrance of sin. The day you got saved, you know what God did with, you, with your sins? He cast them behind his back. He threw them in the deepest part of the sea, as he tells us in the book of Micah, and he remembers them no more. Now, what does that mean? That God has amnesia and doesn't remember? No, it means that he will never again use your sin against you because Jesus paid for it. Amen? My goodness, look alive. If that doesn't excite us, I don't know what will excite us. My sins have been forgiven me for his name's sake. Your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. Okay? So here we see that under the new covenant, there is no, uh, no more remembrance of sin. And secondly, there is no more con consciousness of sin. For that reason, under the new covenant, there, are, there was no more need for the Levitical sacrifices to be offered day in and day out, day in and day out. Those sacrifices could ne never take away sin. Therefore, believers in Christ have no more need of them now. The sacrifice of Jesus is more than sufficient and efficient. And this is why the last verse of our section today, verse 18, says, after he says, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more, says, now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. It is not needed because when a sinner trusts Christ, his or her sins are all forgiven, the guilt is gone. And the problem is completely settled forever. What did the Lord cry on the cross? It is what? What do you think was finished? The redemptive work was finished at the cross. Nobody can add anything to it. He declared at the cross that statement because he brought perfection. And through it, he brought complete forgiveness. And this is why God remembers our sins no more. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that great or is that great? Hmm? We serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. You can go home and make a little experiment. Dirty your hand with a little bit of oil. Olive oil is best, healthier. Put a little oil and then try to wash it off with just water. Will it go away? No. That's the Levitical sacrifices. 
but now take some Palmolive or Dawn or Ajax or whatever, pour it on top of it, and then wash it. That's the, the sacrifice of Christ. Because that takes away the oil, doesn't it? I think that's the best illustration I can give you. And guess what? With this verse that we just read, we come to the end of that section. Everything that started back in chapter 6, I think it was, was all this dissertation. And you might have thought, oh, man, it's so repetitious, you know. But it's detailed. It's a detailed explanation. That's why I took the time to write those outlines in detail as much as possible so that you could have them because it is a deep portion of Scripture doctrinally. And I want you to understand it. Now, that doesn't mean we finish with the book of Hebrews. We just finish with the section. The rest of the chapter is mostly exhortations. And then we're going to come to the 11th chapter, which is the faith chapter. Fabulous gallery of heroes. Talking about heroes. Who needs Hollywood when we have the Bible? And those were real heroes. Hollywood creates cream puffs. Idiots. Failures. Failures. 